Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 30. I mean, be ha- if you're going to get into farming, have a realistic expectation of the amount of work that you're going to be doing. The fact that if you're doing livestock, there's no days off. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. Every podcast episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm Cal Hardage, your host. On today's episode, we talk with Matt Sparatio of Cove Creek Farm. We're going to talk about his journey from teaching into farming and what they're doing on their farm. We mainly focus on their beef cows and their pastured pork. But for the overgrazing section, we talk about a project that they've not started yet. But they're working with area farmers to implement. I think you'll like it. Matt, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're glad you're joining us today. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Yeah, we are located in uh, Tennessee, uh, in between Chattanooga and Nashville on the Cumberland Plateau. Um, We've been farming... For a little over six years now, my wife and I were both teachers for 11 years, and then we made the jump into farming. When we first got here, my wife taught for another year and a half, and then she farm got too big, and she had to come and join me on the farm. Uh, we raise grass-fed, grass-finished beef, pasture and forest-raised pork, uh, pastured chicken, uh, free-range laying hens for eggs. And we do have goats, although they're kind of more of a brush clearing enterprise for us. Oh, yes. Now, six years ago when you started the farm, did you already have a farm background? Not really. I grew up in upstate New York, and my wrestling coach had a small dairy herd of 20 head of cattle. And I you know, got summer jobs stacking hay bales and mucking the barn in the wintertime, but not really any farm experience. And after my experience with a dairy, I told myself I would never farm. So it's kind of funny that I'm <laughs> oh, back yes. here. Uh, my parent, my dad grew up on a uh, produce farm when he was younger, but they moved away from that when he was still pretty young. Um, so that's our only real connection to agriculture. It was more about a desire to know where our meat was coming from. Oh, yes. Yeah. So more than six years ago, you start considering the possibility of a farm. I'm assuming more than six years ago because you had to think about it for a little bit. Yeah, we actually bought the land for, we have two farms now. We bought the first farm in 2008, 2009 when the market crashed. Oh, yes. And we were kind of on the I don't think regenerative agriculture was the terminology at the time, but maybe sustainable agriculture. We were uh, following that whole movement. And uh, my brother was already living in Tennessee and this land that was being clear cut for timber um, went up for sale because the lumber market crashed during that last economic downturn. And so he bought the land and we started doing research, but we, um, didn't finally move down until 2015, July of 2015. Oh, yes. And when you moved down, uh, what did you start with? Uh, about 12 feet of briars. <laughs> <laughs> so we got the, we quickly got the, um, because it had been clear cut in 2007, 2008. And yes. it just was left fallow until 2015. We had, oh, while yeah. we were still living in New Jersey, we had people put in, a perimeter fence on 60 of the acres. And then about a year before we moved down, we put on some Texas longhorn and some brush goats, Kiko's, um, Kiko mixes to kind of start eating down some of the briars. Um, And we had a neighbor go out and check on them quite frequently, but we weren't doing any rotational grazing at that point. It was more just see what kind of damage they could do to make it so we could (laughs) see what we're working with. Very good. The important point there is you started. Yeah. You know, you got, everyone's got to start somewhere. Definitely. (laughs) So you, you moved down there. Y'all had Longhorns and Kiko crosses. Yes. They're predominantly Kiko, but you could see a little boar and a few. Oh, yes. And uh, it was only, we started off with two uh, cow 
Texas Longhorn cows, and they both calved relatively shortly while we weren't even living there. Um, but we quickly decided that the Longhorn was not not for us. At least the genetics that we had, they were too long legged. Oh yes, um, it was too hard to fill them out. But they were great at browsing. And uh, we short quickly we jumped into Scottish Highland also because they're good at browsing. Oh yes. And we still have one of our original Scottish Highland cows that we're thinking about crossing with our Devon to see if we can get the hardiness of the Highland with the faster growth of the Devon. And oh yes, we have never had any issues with the Highland and we can get put her on the pa- worst pasture you can imagine. And she is fat and happy. Oh yes. Uh, I've heard that about Highlands. They seem a little uh, too furry for the hot weather here, but Actually, I say that down the road, six miles from me, they've got some Highland cows. So I guess they're she not. She slicks up pretty nice in the summer. Oh, yeah. Um, and we're about 10 degrees cooler on average than Chattanooga and Nashville because of our elevation. Oh, and yeah. our nighttime temperatures drop significantly compared to theirs. So like our daily average temperature is a little bit lower than oh, yes. the surrounding area. In talking about your temperatures, when's your first freeze and your last freeze of the year? So first, last frost is April 20th. Okay. And first frost has been different every year we've been here. Um, (laughs) But it stays relatively mild through most of December. Oh, yes. Like we'll usually get one cold week in December where we're going to get some frost i mean we'll, we'll we'll we will get frost but not any hard deep freezes oh yeah prior to that and then we generally have a quick warm-up in january for a week and then it get, dips down again and oh, then it does yes. that again in february but it's we rarely like our frost depth is 12 inches i mean we can bury our pipes 12 inches and not worry about it freezing oh yeah do you get much precipitation during the winter yeah we we get about 59 60 inches per year Oh, and, yes. Uh, it's spread out pretty evenly through the shoulder seasons and winter and a little more sparse in the summer. Oh, yeah. If we go three weeks, three or four weeks without rain, we're we're all complaining. Like we <laughs> <laughs> this past week, it's rained every day. But prior to that, we had gone three weeks and everybody was scrambling to buy hay. Oh, yes. Because of three weeks of dry. So we're, we're a little spoiled yep. here. <laughs> You know, it's amazing how quickly you go from complaining about the rain to complaining you need some rain. It's, it, that is true. <laughs> our our May was very wet, and we had a number of days just rain. And that's all the complaining I heard was, you know, we need some sun, sunshine. Rain's got to stop. And the rain stopped. And we've been, I don't know, we had a maybe a couple weeks without much measurable rain and um, the ground dried out pretty quick and people's complaining. Yeah. We do have a lot of sandstone up on the plateau. So oh, we, yes. drain really, we drain really quickly. Oh it yeah. It dries out really quickly. Yeah. So keeping a good cover on your pasture is really important. And um, a lot of like, when you ask questions about our farms, it's going to have to be like based on what farm we're talking about, because the one was a clear cut, and it's still a major project in getting that pasture renovated and turning it from, you know, a forest biology in the soil to a pasture biology. And then the um, second farm we bought was an established pasture. It had been hayed for uh, 15 years. Oh, yes. So it had been depleted of soil and was starting to just be dominated by fescue. But so the, there's different contexts for how we do and what how we manage each property. Oh, yes. And I can see that because those those properties each present their own challenges. Yeah. What you've got to work towards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So let's jump back to the, the cattle a little bit more before we jump into the forages, because we were talking about your highlands and uh, temperatures there. So you've got some highlands and then you had them a little while and moved towards Devon's. Yeah. We were focusing mostly on the brush clearing initially and as we got more pasture established we knew we were going to transition to more grass-based genetics oh yes and i i think the highlands could do really well if i had the time 
to wait for them. They, they do take a little bit longer. They seem to take three years to get oh, yes. to full mature weight where I'm still not able on grass with the Devons to do exactly two years, but it's about, you know, six to seven months less than what the Highlands were doing. Oh yeah. Yes. So I can still finish them before 30 months compared to 36 months. Oh, okay. And when did you, how long have you had your Devons? Uh, we got Devons probably in our, the end of our second year. So probably about oh, four okay. years. So you've had them a little while. And we started with, we bought a bull and I think it was six heifers. Year, uh, not yearling, uh, ready to breed heifers. Oh, yes. And that's kind of, when people are looking for starter herds, that's kind of about the size that most people are looking for. Yeah, it's a nice compromise between the amount of time you have to wait for calves and not spending a huge money for a pair. Yeah. yeah. And so now I think we're up to 74 purebred Devons. Uh, to keep up with uh, demand for meat supply through our direct marketing, we had to bring, buy in um, some steers this year. We bought in 10 extra steers because we had, we were able to, at the rate that we were selling meat, we needed to fill 10 extra spots. Oh yes. And uh, so we found another farm that didn't have any slaughter dates or was having a hard time getting slaughter dates and needed to move some steers. And they also do grass. Uh, they do grass for the first, you know, 14 months and then they take them to a feedlot and finish them off. So we were able to buy them up before they were put on grain and we can mix them into our, our meat operation. Were they similar breeding as your cattle or a little bit different? Uh, we can't find Devons locally. So we bought Herefords. Oh, okay. still have the red coat. Um, the most important thing for me is since we market grass fed, grass finished beef, you know, finding cows and it was hard to find cows that hadn't been on grain. Oh, I imagine so. Prior to us purchasing them. And when you market your meat, are you selling through farmer's markets? Are you selling directly to a consumer through halves and holes? We try to do, have our feet in as many markets as possible. Um, and the pandemic is a perfect example because we predominantly were selling through farmer's markets and we had a small web presence. And then early on in the pandemic, some of our markets closed down. And so we weren't able to sell there. But then our having the website presence allowed us to quickly transition into selling and shipping meat. And that carried us for three or four months. And that has still maintained as a decent sales oh, yes. avenue. It's still a lot, a lot larger than what it was prior to the pandemic, but as markets have picked up, we've been able to do both. So we do three farmer's markets. One is an online farmer's market where I just have to pack the order. They, people order from Friday night to Monday morning. Oh, yes. And then on Tuesday, I just pack the orders and drop them off and I'm done with the market. Um, and then there's, I do one on Thursday and one on Sundays. And those are larger metropolitan markets are you seeing the farmer markets pick back up since the pandemic and the crash there yeah um uh the sunday market is i'm doing about double what i was doing prior to the pandemic oh wow and so i, I don't know if it's just people are excited to be back out and actually have something to do <laughs> yes. um, but i also think there's a renewed interest in local meat knowing where your meat's coming from and there's a little bit more awareness now that you know there's been some issues with the meat packing industry right and i think both of those are are excellent points there people are excited to get out but then people are wanting to be more aware of where their meat comes from yeah yeah very good on your devons and your decision to go with devons what brought you to the devon cattle uh we were looking for a smaller framed animal that was a pasture but would be able to finish on grass and not need oh, corn. Yes. and the because the devon had never been 
I mean, the Devon were very popular early on in America. They were one of the breeds of the pilgrims introduced into America. Um, and so when corn and grain and uh, feedlots became more prevalent, the Devon were never bred for that market. And so their genetics are still true to being grass finished. And, you know, there's other breeds that do great. And we just happened to be located in a position where there was a large farm, probably one of the larger farms in America that raises Red Devon in Virginia that was not that far away from us. And my parents had actually moved within an hour of them. And so I took a trip to see my parents and I drove up to visit the cows, see how they're doing. Um, and we kind of fell in love with the breed, but yeah, it was more of a proximity. Oh, than, yes. You know, oh, the South Pole versus the Devon. And that's an important consideration when you're thinking about what breed you want to go with. Um, there's something about being unique and, and forging your own trail. But at the same time, if you don't have a breeder fairly close to you that you can get genetics and trade genetics with, it becomes much more difficult. Yeah. So you you got your Devons, and are you grazing them on both farms? Yeah, so we are grazing most of our Devon at the second farm, which was already an established pasture. Oh, okay. Um, that's about 97 acres worth of really decent pasture. Uh, we move them daily. We give them about an acre and a half. It goes anywhere from an acre up to like, two and a half acres depending on the time of the year and how we're moving them. And, you know, that's per day. So there's times we're doing twice a day move. Sometimes we're putting them in an area like the Saturday, myself, my employee and my wife are all busy. We're not going to be able to get over there to move them. So we're going to give them a two day paddock on Friday. Oh yes. Yeah. Just kind of got to go with it. Um, you know, have your ideal, but then be flexible enough to adjust. Um, then we grow cover crops uh, mostly to build soil organic matter at the farm that had been clear cut. And then we bring our steers over and we graze them on the cover crop at the farm oh, okay. to, to mostly build cover, uh, build up the organic matter. And then in the winter time, we bring a large portion. We kind of split the herd and on the farm that was a clear cut, we are uh, unrolling hay and just getting really heavy. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. we, we tight pack, pack them tight. We move them frequently and we just try to cover every inch of ground surface with hay. Are you buying? Yeah, we buy all our hay. We do not own hay equipment. Our tractors are barely big enough to lift the hay. Bale. Oh yes. So we, we are very equipment low intensive. Very good. On your, your farm, that's the established pasture. Uh, what kind of forages do you have there? So we have, when we first took over, you could not see any clover at all, like walking the pastures. It was mostly fescue dominant. Oh, yes. Um, and we were a little afraid of that because of the endophyte issues. But, you know, just predominantly with management, we've introduced a few things like vetch. Oh, yes. And some other legumes, but like, white clover just came back and it was, it took over this year. Um, and then we have some Timothy orchard grass, lots of fescue. We have a grass that's called uh, common velvet grass. Okay. Which can take over a pasture. It's really good for hay quality grass, yes. but it's not ideal pasture grass. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we hit that really heavy and hard to get the cows to graze that out, to give other, and we try to hit it at different times of the year. Oh yeah. To get the um, different impact on it, to let the others, but it's been amazing just through management, the variety of species. I mean, there's stuff that I don't, I'm still learning to identify plants because my um, teaching, I was more of a physical science teacher than biology. So we're still learning to identify, but you know, uh, there's a little plant ID apps are great. I just downloaded one on my phone the other day. I have some new property under a lease and I was going through it and I'm like, I don't know what these plants are over here. Uh, it hasn't been grazed in years. So I 
um, was talking to a gentleman. He told me about this app, so I downloaded it. It's pretty amazing in how well it does. Yeah. I think we use, uh, is it picture this? I'd have to look on my phone. But that sounds about right. Yeah, it was, well, there's several apps that do that. But we are we have such, because of our microclimate on the plateau, Yes, we have such long swing seasons. Like it can get, you know, 85, 90 during the day, but it's going to drop down to 60 at night. And so we have really long swing seasons. So we try to take advantage of those cool season grasses oh, yes. as much as possible. I mean, we're still doing a lot of experimenting. Like last uh, September, we planted oats, rye, cereal rye, and annual rye grass. And, you know, a couple, and red clover or crimson clover. Since we don't have a tractor big enough to pull a no-till drill, someone local had this box that you put seed in. It's got two different hoppers and it's got some disc. But like you have to practically have someone sitting on top of it for extra weight to get it to make any soil contact. Oh, yes. So we didn't get the greatest germination. <laughs> but we are starting to experiment with some uh, of those species. We're thinning out some of the forest because both properties have a lot of forest still. We're thinning those to create some silvo pastures. Oh, yes. Um, we're going to do about a 30% canopy oak savanna style silvo pastures. And then there's a couple areas where we have... Uh, no shade for the cattle. So we're going to be planting some rows of, uh, because we also raise pigs, nut trees and other things for them to, you know, mass to, for them to forest, uh, forage. Oh, yes. Talking about moving your cattle daily. Uh, how are you doing your fencing, uh, perimeter and interior? Because we have sandstone, we have run into some issues with getting a good ground. Oh, because yeah. we don't have much, we don't have much topsoil. So a lot of our ground rods, we can't have to use like four foot ground rods because you hit bedrock. Oh yes, pretty quickly. Um, when it's wet, you don't want to touch the fence. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have any type of dry spell of two or three days long, then you you weaken it. So we put in woven wire for our perimeter fences. Oh okay. So we have field fence with a offset hot that we can uh, tie all of our poly wire into. So we use Gallagher uh, geared reels and uh, Gallagher uh, pigtail oh, yes. fence for our cattle. We use Premier One net fencing for our chickens and our pigs and our goats. Oh, yes. Very good. And are you rotating your pigs and goats um, on the same rotation as your cattle? Or how's that working? Um, they're not daily moves. Um, so we'll find an area of the farm that still needs some work with briars and we'll fence it off for, depending on the size of the area, anywhere from three days to a week. And we just leave our goats in there with water access. Um, with our pigs, it depends on the size of the animal. When they're little, they don't do much damage. So we pretty much base it on how much feed they are going through. Okay. Because that, that kind of determines, like, it, it's the amount of pounds of animal that's on the ground and how much impact we want them oh, to yes. have and how much disturbance we want to have. So when they're young and they're not creating much disturbance, we can keep them up to a week at the most. Um, when they get a little bit bigger, you know, two to three days. We were early on trying to move in, like, a leader follow yes. uh, system. And it just got to be a management nightmare. And my wife said something has to give because we'll just spend our entire lives setting up and moving fences oh, yes. and never do anything but that. Um, so we, we had to kind of make some adjustments to our management practices. But we find that if we take um, take our animals and you know focus on what the what the land needs, right. And focus on that. Then we it makes our lives a lot more livable. Oh yes, yeah. So that, that's part of the balancing act. It is the quality of life and and a balance between it all. Some of the toughest parts. Now, when you talking about bigger pigs do have more disturbance, are you going through and are they uh, working that ground over so you have to go in and plant something, or are you moving them before they get to that point? 
So if you were to see our land, the, we run the pigs at the property that was clear cut. And so we've been slowly putting all the treetops that were left over. Oh, yes. From the clear cutting into giant piles. We've been doing that from the beginning. And what we do is we feed them in those piles. Oh, yeah. And the weight of the pigs, the trampling, the rooting for the food, digging through it breaks up the wood and it causes the decompo- it to decompose a lot faster. And that decreases the impact on the actual pasture that's getting established. So we just feed them in those brush piles. And when they've knocked out a big chunk of brush pile, we move to the next brush pile. Sounds like sure. a good and, plan. And when they clear cut, they a lot of the smaller trees were left behind on that property. So we were able to, you know, keep them and we kind of pushed the brush piles next to it. But now we're starting to get some pretty decently established oak trees. Oh, yes. And uh, in the fall, when the trees start losing their acorns and we have a few hickory, um, some black walnut, but the, the pigs love it. Oh, I imagine so. And talking about your, your pigs, are you feral to finish or are you buying feeder pigs? We're fair to finish. We have six sows right now. We have nine sows now. Nine sows and two boars. Oh, okay. Are they a um, specific breed? We mostly raise Gloucester Old Spots. Okay. Uh, old British breed. Uh, but we do have two mule foot or three mule foot sows. Um, they have the fused hoof in the, uh, on their feet. So they have a sing instead of being cloven, they're single hoof. Oh, yes. Um, and they make a nice mix. We uh, raise 40 pigs a year for another local farm that's much more established than we are. And they were raising Gloucester Old Spots, and we were getting into breeding pigs. And they said, would you like to have our breeding stock in exchange for you raising pigs for us? And so that's how we ended up getting into the Gloucester Old Spot. Oh, yes. Um, and then some mule foots came along. We had already had two, a Gloucester Old Spot boar and a Gloucester Old Spot sow, but then we got six sows from them and another uh, boar from them. Their boar is uh, 50% from the British line, the older line. Oh, okay. So slightly shorter nose, um, stockier build, more traditional. If you ever look at those old genetic books oh, for yes. pigs and cattle and stuff like that, like they massive looking pigs. This is... That's what he looks like. Oh, okay. I didn't, uh, it makes sense, but I really didn't think about there being, um, you know, as you mentioned, a British line or an older line there. Um, it makes sense. I just had never thought about it. Yeah, I forget which breed, but in America, there's a particular breed that got mixed in with almost every breed of pig for the commercial oh, yes. lines. And so getting away from those commercial uh, line pigs is one of our goals. Oh, yes. And you're selling um, 40 pigs a year to this other farm. And then are you direct marketing yours, the re remainders? So every two months, we put three sows in with a boar. Oh, okay. And so they'll go in with a boar twice a year, about twice a year. So it kind of comes out closer to 13 months. Oh, yeah. Um, because we, we do give them a break in between weaning and going back in with the boar. Um, so our goal, we don't keep a sow if she's not going to have at least 10 live. Oh, yeah. And so each, each round of breeding will have at least 30 piglets. And we'll keep 18 of them for ourselves because we slaughter six a month. Oh, okay. And then we sell the rest as feeders. Although we are going to have to start upping it. We started working with a restaurant and we have to up our pig production. So we'll be keeping probably 24 for our own production oh, and yes. selling any surplus. So we'll have about 200 pigs this year. Piglets. Oh, okay. Are you faring them on pasture or are you bring them into some kind of facility? Until this year, we didn't ha actually have a barn. So we've always been outdoor. Give them a bale of hay. Oh, yes. If they have enough, we get in on that farm, we have enough um, 
broom sedge. Yes. In certain areas, if we put them in an area, they'll make their own nest from the broom sedge. They just bite it. And you'd be amazed how amazing they are at making nests. They know what to do. Oh, yes. do thing. I have never had to assist a birth with a pig. Um, we do have a harder time in the wintertime. Our litter sizes are lower. So oh, you know, yes. getting that 10 is a little bit harder. And yeah. You know, if we get the piglets through the first four days, we have never lost the piglet. And that's how good, and that's the type of moms that we want. Oh, yes. And how old are you weaning the piglets at? Our goal is eight weeks. Okay. Um, we try to castrate within the first four days, but always within the first week. Um, it's just so much easier on us and the pigs. Oh, yes. Um, there's early on, I when I was buying feeder pigs, I... And I didn't know what I was doing. We were just getting into farming. I mean, I tell people that six years ago, I'd never had a trailer on the back of a truck before. And now I can back a trailer up. Um, yeah. But with pigs, it's a totally different experience. I bought a litter of pigs that was supposedly weaned and castrated. And uh, turned it, turned out they weren't. And Oh, no. You know, at three months old, chasing little boars around trying to castrate them was not on my list of fun things to do. Yes. I, I think that's much easier at less than four days of age or about. Yeah. <laughs> and then we feed them. Um, we don't feed any corn or soy to our animals. Okay. Well, I'd say our laying hens probably get some corn, but our pigs, they get a hundred percent barley and whey so we there's another grass uh fed dairy that's just off the plateau for us it's about a 25 minute drive and i go down and get about a thousand gallons of whey every week and a half to two weeks from them it's a byproduct for them so they have to they have to deal with getting rid of it oh yes and when you mix it in with the whey the whey is really high in i mean the barley is really high in fiber and so the younger pigs have a hard time digesting it, but it has a really good protein profile for pigs. But by mixing it with the whey, it breaks down some of that fiber and makes it more digestible for the piglets. Oh, yeah. And so we could move away from the cor uh, corn and soy. And we have actually another farm on the other side of the plateau that grows us all the barley. So we're trying to like close that loop and keep our feed sources as local as possible. And this year, next winter, they're going to plant field peas in with the barley. Oh, okay. So we can up the protein even higher. Yes. Um, and it's kind of nice because for them, we, and I do this with my pricing. I don't base my pricing for my product on what other people are selling for or what, you know, uh, grocery store prices. What I do is I keep track of my costs. Oh, yes. I keep track of my, I keep a ballpark track of my labor. I probably underestimate my labor. I think all farmers do. <laughs> That's the price I need to make for me to continue doing this. Oh, if yes. It, if it's too high for some people, it's going to be too high for some people and I'm not going to make them happy. So when I worked with the uh, people growing the barley, I said, what do you need to make per acre and how much barley can you make oh, yes. per acre? And if that price works for you and it works for me, let's do it. And I'm not going to worry about what barley is selling for. And you don't have to worry about what barley is selling for. So they probably could be making a little bit more right now. But when we first started, I was paying a premium because that's what it was took oh, to make yeah. them. But yeah. it was still cheaper than commercial feed. Like yes. if I was going and buying 50-pound bags. So I was still saving me about a you know $100 a ton. But I was still paying more than I would from a distributor oh yeah it, 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 it helps foster that you know relationship between you know farms that you're you know you cre create that local dependence instead of being dependent oh, yes. on somebody that at a grain mill far away that you don't you've never met yes yeah and ties into what we have passions about um i don't really care too much about raising any crops now i don't mind raising pasture because I kind of like my livestock, but without my livestock, it'd be pretty boring for me. True. Did you get the, the, did you get started in pork about the same time as cattle or was that a later addition? 
That was probably about six or seven months in, and my wife jokingly said, so you're telling me it's going to take two to three years for these steers to be big enough to slaughter, <laughs> and you're not going to make any money in that time? <laughs> and so uh, we were actually calling around looking for cattle, um, other browsing cattle. Oh, yes. Increased the amount of browsing that was going on. And I called somebody on Craigslist, and he had just sold – is uh the cows he goes but i do have a few pigs and i was like i don't think i want to do pigs <laughs> and then you know, i called him back a couple hours later after looking up and finding out i could finish them in six months oh yes and have a product to sell and that's how we got into pigs it is steep learning curve oh yes like you have to train them to electric early on there's still issues with them even after training sometimes they have to be brought back into a hard fence and retrained because they learn quickly. They're smart animals. Yes. And they'll learn quickly. Also, in addition to your um, pork and your cattle, you have chickens. Yes. So are you doing pastured chickens or, or pastured poultry? I mean, are you doing layers? Yeah, we do both meat birds and laying hens. Oh, okay. Our laying hens are in a premier one poultry net fence. Okay. And it's, we do, we do farm tours and I always get the question, like, what's the difference between the chickens inside the fence and the chickens outside of the fence? And my answer was the ones inside are too dumb to figure out that they can get out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we really do have free range laying hens. They just all over the farm. We lose a large portion of our eggs is just them laying in the forest. Oh, yes. Um, and our livestock guardians gobbling them up. It's their favorite little treat. Oh, yeah. And they, and obviously, chickens, when they lay, they make that caulking noise right afterwards so the dogs know <laughs> where to go look for the eggs. Um, and then we also do the meat chickens. The meat chickens we have to raise in a large chicken tractor. Oh, yeah. We tried, we tried free ranging them in a poultry net and we just had too high of losses. They're, if they want to take a nap, they take a nap. And if they're standing in a puddle, they take a nap in a puddle oh, and drown. Yeah. Um, so we have what's called a prairie schooner from Featherman Poultry, okay. which is uh, 20 by 40. It looks like a greenhouse on skids. Yes. And we move that. Early on, we can move it every two days, but after you know, three weeks in the brooder, a week and a half, we can move them every other day. And then from that point on, they get moved every day. And it's amazing. You look down the line where that trail, that tricking tractor has been, it is the greenest oh, yes. grass on the entire farm. <laughs> it looks like somebody's making crop circles with spray paint. <laughs> now, are you, you moving that um, tractor by hand or are you using a... No, no. Either a truck or a tractor. Okay. That. It's, it's, it's pretty heavy. Oh, yes. I, I expected that, but I wasn't sure. Are you using Cornish crosses for your poultry or are you using a slow broiler? We are using Cornish crosses just because I have an employee and one of his jobs is feeding and moving the chickens and paying him to move them for eight weeks versus <laughs> 10 to 12 weeks really affects the margins that we can make. On oh, yes. Chickens. Um and I know they go through the same amount of feed, but it's really, for us, it's the labor that affects the margins. And we also raise about 600 meat chickens for another farm throughout the year. So we use, that's like one of the things that like I really love about the community that we've built on the Cumberland Plateau or the surrounding farms is that I had the infrastructure to raise more birds than I had demand and someone else didn't have the time. Oh, yes. So they pay they pay me so that I can pay my employee <laughs> to move the tractor and do all that. So we kind of work together to make sure that, you know, economy of scale. Like I can get feed shipped in by the ton and put in a portable silo that's out there with the chickens and like instead of buying by bag. Oh, and so yeah. I'm saving money on feed. And then I have another syllable product. Very good. Uh, Matt, before we move on to our overgrazing section, uh, two things. What are some challenges you've had? And then 
what do you see for the future? So we'll go with the challenges first. What What's some challenges you've had? Um, we live off grid. And so our watering system runs off of solar, gets pumped into storage tanks. Um, we've had issues with lightning uh, striking the, oh, the pump yes. or the solar the charge controller for the pump. So because it's solar, it only pumps during the day. So we have to have storage tanks and that feeds the house plus the entire farm. Um, and we've had issues with, we have really irony water. So clogging of pipes. So making sure that our water system is up and running and effective. Oh yes. Uh, really important. And when everything's working properly, moving the animals is great because the water's there. We have, we have over two miles worth of in-ground plumbing for both oh, farms. Yes. And so like every, you know, 200, 300 feet, we have water yes. access, but the system has to be pumping in order for the water yes. to get there. Yeah. And um, that has been a big challenge to make sure that's always up and running. Oh, yeah. Um, time has been a ma major issue. Um, I always say that, you know, if you think it's going to take you an hour, it's probably going to take you three. My, my <laughs> wife gets on to me all the time about that. She's like, how long you think it's going to take? Just 15 minutes. Uh-huh. <laughs> an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So those kind of, those kind of issues are the biggest thing. I love what I do though. So I can't complain too much. Very good. Where are you going with your farm? So we are, we are opening an educational component on our farm. My wife being a former first grade teacher, she, I wanted to leave teaching. My wife loved teaching. So oh, we're, yes. um, we're going to do a little bit of agro-tourism. Uh, oh, very nice. Like a, a learning barn. Uh, we're having a local landscaper put in like a natural playscape. So using the nat. The, the creeks and a spring and some ponds and some climbing rocks and boulders and logs and stuff like that. So we're going to do like forest kindergartens during the week and bring schools out and they get to see the animals and they get to learn about rotational grazing and you know, why we move the animals all the time and why they can't always see the cows when they're driving by the farm. Oh yes. Um, some people were asking us recently, do you move your cows to another farm every a couple okay. weeks. I was like, no, they're just on the backside for about a month and a half, two months before yeah. they come back up to the front. Um, so that's that's exciting for me, mostly because I think that'll allow me to um, hire more employees. Oh yeah, and free up more time, like the extra income from that. Uh, I'd like to get at least one day back a week where I'm not. Oh yeah. Like my, I joke my days off are like six hours because I'm still doing chores <laughs> to feed to feed everybody. Um, so getting one day back, and we've been we are we're passionate about having on farm meat processing. Oh yes. So so that that educational component hopefully can fund um, either a value added commercial kitchen or an actual full on 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 farm processing. Oh, very good. Yeah, Matt. It's time for our overgrazing section. We're going to take a deep dive into one of your practices. And I actually think for today, we're going to talk about something that's maybe happening in the future. What's our topic for today? Uh, we're going to be talking about a farm incubator project that I have going on with about 10 other farms uh, in the area. Let's jump back on this farm incubator project. How did it get started or the idea get out there? Uh, I'm a, the vice president of the local chapter of the Young Farmers, National Young Farmers Coalition. So like the Southeast Tennessee chapter. And early on in our uh, chapter, we got together and we're discussing how we could work more cooperatively oh, yeah. as far as small farms in order to compete with the big farms like we don't have the economy of scale as individual farms, but if we could pool resources, maybe we would have that same economy of scale. And then we got talking about, you know, maybe possibly going in and doing food process, uh, the animal slaughter together and opening up a, uh, a USDA inspected facility. And as we were talking, we had all these ideas and it all, one of the things we wanted is 
you know, as a chapter, how do we get land access to other young farmers? Like I was fortunate. I have a family member that had land and I'm able to farm his land. Oh yes. Um, and he's kind of like a business partner. I do all the day to day basics and, you know, he helps with business ideas and we work. That's how our partnership works. But if I didn't have that family member that gave me access to land, I don't think I could do what I'm doing. And so one of our biggest motivational drives is how do we get other young farmers that aren't inheriting land from their family on the farm? And there's a lot of farmers that are coming up upon retirement and they, there's going to be farmland available that needs to be farmed. And we would like to see it stay as farmland and not another development. So through all these discussions, it kind of came up with the idea and all of us were doing, um, taking on interns in the summer and we were trying to figure out ways like, you know, I do a lot of stuff with pigs. You know, there's a couple other people that do beef. Some people do sheep. Um, some people have alpacas. We have a lot of things going on that, you know, if I had an intern, they'd be really helpful if they could go and see what the other farms were doing and how they did it. And oh, yes. I may rotate my cattle slightly different than someone else rotates their cattle. And there's something to learn from that. And like, I enjoy just going and doing pasture walks at other farms just to learn from what other farms do. And there might be one little thing that makes a huge, Oh, you, that quick connect for your water is amazing. And that, Oh yes. You know, I would, I originally, I was twisting a hose on a hose spigot at every, wa- every watering and someone showed me a quick neck and I put, it saves me five minutes every move. And we have, you know, seven groups of animals right now moving. Oh, yes. You know, that's 35 minutes a day <laughs> if they're all moving in the same day. So it adds up. And so our goal is to have a series of three-month intensive internships. And we're still debating. Um, we're thinking about in the first three months, it'd be they'd have to pay. Because we want to weed out people that don't, you know, are, we've had pro- issues with uh, other internship programs that are free that people are just looking for a place to hang out for the summer. Oh, yes. And then not really. So we wanted it be, and somebody pointed out, but the education they're getting, and it would be a nominal fee compared to what a college would be. We're not charging oh, yes. college tuition. But so for three months, it would be a nominal fee just to make sure there's commitment. And we'll also have scholarship program for people that don't, are, you know, socioeconomically disadvantaged. Um, so there'll be that three months where they kind of go from farm to farm. They'll do things like fencing, building barns, castrating pigs, slaughtering <laughs> chickens, shearing sheep, you know, working in a garden, like a market garden, doing oh, all those yes. things. And at the end of that three months, we're predicting you know, if we take on 10 of these young farmers, interested farmers, at the end of that first three months, we were predicting eight of the 10 will probably go back to whatever they were doing previously. And we'll have an application window for a second three months where it'd be a much more intensive and they could pick a farm for three months and focus on a single enterprise. Oh, okay. And they'd yeah. Get that mentoring ship for an additional three months. And that would be free. Plus, you know, we probably were thinking about including a stipend for that position. Oh, yes. So there'd be a stipend position. And then at the end of that six-month period, we're in the initial talks with um, some land trusts that are preserving farmland in Tennessee and opening up access. Like, we're going to be the vetting organization. We'll vet these people. They're hardworking. They've worked for us for six months. Right. You know, they'll they'll then be able to apply for a year to stay on and work at one of these farms and really flesh out their enterprise. And one of the farmers in the group would be their mentor and they would have access where we'll have like a tool rental system and sign up sheet. So if someone has a tool that they need and they don't have the initial income or if they need, you know, help with fencing and stuff like that, we'll, We'll provide a resource to get them going in that first year. Uh, we'll provide them with help with getting into markets. Um, they could, you know, I would love someone to cover one of my farmer's markets once a week. They could take their products plus my products, set up a table, 
and then we could take turns going to the market. So we're not there every single week. Oh, yes. And the customers really like to meet the actual farmers. So by alternating, you know, it'd be beneficial. Uh, so they're kind of really giving them an entryway into farming without having to have that steep initial upfront cost of either owning a farm and finding lease land is hard. We oh, tried it before it we is. bought the second farm. We were looking really hard at trying to find. And the problem is like when we could find land, Oh, we have, we've got 25 acres for you. 25 acres. Wasn't going to cut it. Oh, like right. I needed yeah. another, at least a hundred acres of pasture. And it was really hard finding. We ended up having to buy more land. So we're hoping that this whole internship mentoring program can really, you know, create a little hub of regenerative farms in our area that work together and cooperate. I think it sounds really exciting. Um, I'm interested to see how it goes for you all, but um, I think you, you've identified some of the difficult or challenges new farmers have, you know, just that, initial cost to get started and then gaining the experience and the education. And you mentioned, you know, college costs a lot more, you know, college is going to teach you a lot of different things, getting that hands on, um, finding a mentor to work with. So very valuable. I agree. Well, Matt, we appreciate you sharing about that. It's time for us to do our famous four questions. They are the same four questions we ask of every guest and don't tell bigger pockets. I stole the idea from their podcast. Our first question, what's your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? I was, I'm an avid reader and I've read so many books, like, you know, 10 years before I started. Oh yeah. I had probably read 50 books on farming. Um, so I actually listened to all your other podcasts so that I could pick a book that hadn't already been mentioned oh very good i think i'm pretty sure it hasn't so greener pastures on your side of the fence by bill murphy he takes uh what is it voicing he takes Voison's book uh productive grass productivity and he breaks it down and explains it in like more layman terms oh yes you do have me there i'm not familiar with that book and so that, that was one of the, I think my parents bought it for me. Oh, yes. When I first expressed interest in farming. And it's like, for me, I as a former science teacher, I like a lot of the other books that are out there, but there are a lot of anecdotal books. So it's like, yes. this is what I did. And it worked for me. For me, as like with a science background, yeah, it worked in that situation or that context, but will it work? And like, I was giving up a really good job. My wife was giving up a really good job. We were giving up pensions. We were giving up a lot of job security to go into farming. I needed a book that would like break it down and say, if you do this, these are the results in a oh, scientific yes. and like break down the study, how it was studied. And he did a really good job of breaking that down. So for me, that kind of gave me a little sense, like it's going to be hard. It's not going to be pretty, <laughs> yes. but it, it, it's possible. There's scientific evidence to back up that moving your animals, thinking about how they impact the land and what type of impact you want to get out of them actually can have significant drastic impact. I mean, if you looked at my 15 feet of briar, 12 to 15 feet of briars, six years ago and the lush green pasture that's gotten oh, so yeah. far ahead of me this year that, you know, some sections are seeding out, mm -hmm. you know, that that's proof, but that's in, that's my context. That's one antidote. This book breaks it down and explains why that's happening. Oh, very good. Very good. Now I do have a question on your briars. When you started, did you take pictures of all that and take pictures of the progression? Not very well. I you know, I'm finding that too. My most, my biggest problem is like at the time we didn't have the cloud and farming. Yes. I broke, I early on, I broke my phones farming 
And so the pictures that were on that phone, so I don't have access to a lot of my early photos. Oh, yes. So yeah. that's my problem. Um, but yeah, I do have a few pictures that I, I could yeah. send over to you. Very good. Might... An excellent book. I, um, again, I'm, I'm stumped. I will have to look that book up. Um, yeah. It sounds like one I need to read. Our next question, what tool could you not live without on your farm? I'm going to have to go with uh, human resources. Um, there's a wealth of knowledge in other farmers locally. Yes. Um, that have been doing it a lot longer than me that are, you know, completely giving of their time and selfless. And I think I would have given up probably in year two or three if it wasn't for other people. Like I expressing frustration and them showing up the next day to help with something or look at something, explain like, you know, I was having problems with the well and someone came out and, you know, flicked the switch and boom, solved the problem. Very good. Relying on that human resource, I think is getting connected with other farmers in your area that know the climate and know the issues that your animals are going to be dealing with. Excellent. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were beginning? Or what would you tell a grass farmer just getting started? Everybody that is in farming, when they're selling a product, is going to sell the sexy of farming. Don't fall in love with the sexy of farming. (laughs) Because 99% of the time, there's nothing sexy about it. (laughs) <laughs> castrate a pig and you'll know it, yes yeah i mean be ha- if you're going to get into farming have a realistic expectation of the amount of work that you're going to be doing the fact that if you're doing livestock there's no days off until you get to a point where you can hire someone to go like for me to go away for a day is 150 dollars before i step out of the house oh I yes to hire, i had to bring in labor yes and so have a realistic expectation that for the first three or four years, you're not going anywhere and it's going to be hard work. And there's at times very little reward. And if you're okay with that and you love the work, do it. Yes. Just get yes. started. Excellent advice, Matt. And Matt, where can others find out more about you? Um, our website is www.covecreekfarm.com. We're on Instagram and Facebook. I'm not great at it. I'll go in bits and spurts or my wife will go in bits and spurts depending on who happens to catch a good picture um, yes. or video. And then there's times where you won't hear from us for a week or two. Um, but email is probably the best way to get to us. We live in the middle of nowhere, so cell phones are very not very reliable. But if you ever need to get, reach out or you have questions for me, uh, email. You can find a contact form on our website. Very good, Matt. We appreciate you coming on to the podcast today and sharing with us. Thanks for having me. I had a good time. I trust that you enjoyed that as much as I did. Red Devon is a breed of cattle that intrigues me, but there's not a lot in my area. So that's some cows I'd like to look at sometime. I think their project that they are working to implement with other farmers for a farm incubator and internship program sounds wonderful, as well as their agro-tourism that they're working on. I feel a little bit bad saying this because we just talked about Red Devons, but if you're going to be at the South Pole Field Day, Be sure you tell me hi. I plan to be there. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. Each episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you'd like to be featured on a future episode of the podcast, visit grazinggrass.com and click on the Be Our Guest link. Fill out the information and we will be in touch. Also, share this episode with someone who may find it valuable. Also, follow our Instagram page and our Facebook page.
And as always, keep on grazing. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them. And we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.